Our topic tonight out of Revelation chapter 12, the land that swallowed the flood. Last week we looked at another aspect of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, this chapter starts with this, with this woman uh, and it describes her a little bit and then it begins to describe a dragon that tries to attack the woman and then it gets into a whole parenthetical section about the dragon and that's what we looked at last week. And then it goes back, then the chapter ends back with the, with the woman. And so uh, we broke it up into two parts. We looked about the dragon uh, last week. This week we're going to study this woman mentioned in this chapter. Now, Revelation has a lot of parallels. Uh, it has two women, for example. So we're going to look at one woman here this week. And hopefully by God's grace, next week we'll look at the other woman. And with all these parallels, there's one that's the real, the reality, the true, and the other that's the counterfeit. And we have, so we have two women, we have two cities, we have two animals, a beast and a lamb, um, and um, two feasts, and a lot of different things that are parallel. Uh, two different uh, uh, beings that claim that they are the one who was and who is and who is to come, or something similar to that. So the counterfeit is a little bit different. Uh, and again, so they're, they're constantly, so you, you have the Lord, and then you have the devil trying to, again, counterfeit what the Lord is doing. And so let's look at the woman mentioned in this chapter. It's a very significant chapter. It's a dividing chapter. Uh, we've seen over and over again throughout the book of Daniel, all the prophecies went from Daniel's day to the end of time. And then so far, all the prophecies in John have gone from John's day to the end of time repeating over and over again this time period, overlapping it, overlapping it, overlapping it, each time repeating the same time period, but giving us more information regarding these time periods, again, from the prophet's day through the end of time, covering, that way the Bible covers all of Earth's history. But this chapter does something a little different. It goes back much further. It goes all the way back before the creation of this world to the fall of the devil, the dragon out of heaven, the casting out, and it takes us all the way past this earth's history. And so again, it's this long line covering uh, longer than earth's history, and, uh, and then moving forward after this, all the rest of the chapters of Revelation will zero in on last day events. Okay, so let's get into this chapter. Uh, again, a significant chapter is this dividing chapter, it's this bridging chapter, and it brings in, each one is expanded, so now we're going to expand further in the players that affect God's people. And again, all the prophecies are designed to teach us about God's interaction here on this earth. So it's God interacting with people, God interacting with people who are open and receptive to him, God interacting through his word, and so the, the, the prophecies follow where God's word and people open and receptive to God's word are living at the time of, of, again, the sequence of events in history. Not that the other people in this world, other countries that aren't mentioned in these Bible prophecies aren't important to God, but they just haven't proven to be open in mass to God and to his word and have a dramatic impact in this same way. Okay, so with that as a lead, let's Get to chapter one, chapter 12, verse 1. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Okay, so we have this woman mentioned here, and she's clothed with the sun. So where do we go to find out what woman represents in Bible prophecy, in the symbolism that's used here? And again, there's a lot of symbolism here in Revelation 12. There's a lot of symbolism in Revelation. And we need to understand it, understanding the symbols Spiritual things being spiritually understood. So where would we go to find out what a woman represents in prophecy? The Bible, exactly, the Bible. The Bible is where we go, right? Not the internet, not asking me, not asking my opinion, not asking some other preacher. Go to the Bible and let the Bible explain itself. Okay, so go to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion, to a comely and delicate woman. All right, so I have likened, so I have made an analogy, I've made a symbol of the daughter of the children of Zion as a woman. I've likened her to a woman. All right, so God's bride, a woman. 
So God's people represented as a woman. When God's people are following God, she's a comely and delicate woman. When we're not following God, we're represented as a harlot. And we see that scattered throughout the Bible, committing adultery against God. So God's people represented as a woman. So she is, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. So what type of woman is represented here? She's clothed with the sun. What does the sun represent? Where do we go to find the, what, the Bible, what, the, what the Bible means in prophetic terms when it's talking about the sun? Where do we go? The Bible. Other places in the Bible. The Bible is its own interpreter. The Bible explains itself. So in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, to you who fear my name, right, daughter of children of Zion, God's people, to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. This is a messianic uh, prophecy here. The son of righteousness appearing with healing in his wings, but it's not S-O-N, son. It's S-U-N. So the sun represented as righteousness. So God's righteousness, the sun has God's righteousness covering this woman. So this woman is God's people following God, clothed with the sun, clothed with God's righteousness. She also has a crown on her head with 12 stars, and that can represent the, the 12 tribes or the 12 apostles. She's standing on the moon. The moon is reflecting the sun's light. And just as we are to reflect God's light, and so here she is in the glory of God, in the righteousness of God. So God's people. So this is now he's talking here, describing God's people. Text continues, verse 2. And, be, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. So here she is, God talking about his people, daughter of children of Zion, his, those that fear his name, God's people, before and up to her being in pain and travailing in birth. So she's pregnant and just about to give birth. So eight months, nine months pregnant. She's ready to give birth. And so now it's timing us along. We're going to see this timeline of this woman, her whole history brought out. So here she is. Now she's ready to give birth in verse 2. And she bore, verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, so she gives birth, she gives birth to a child, a male child, and he's to rule the, all the earth with a rod of iron. So where do we go to find out who this child is? Who's this male child? Again, where do we go? The Bible again. That's right, we go to the Bible and compare texts, compare verses. Revelation has all of these, and that's like 80%, 90% of it is analogies in other parts of the Bible. So very important to understand the whole Bible in order to understand Revelation. So we go to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, S-O-N, son, today I have begotten you, and you shall break them with a rod of iron. Okay, so here another messianic prophecy, talking about the Messiah to come as God's son, as a child of God, and he shall uh, come into this world, and she shall break them with a rod of iron. Okay, so this child that this woman, God's people, gives birth to is the Messiah, right? who breaks the, who will break all the nations of the earth when he comes again in judgment and break all the nations of this world with a rod of iron. So the Messiah is coming forth, the Messiah comes forth out of this woman, so that gives us the time period of where he is talking about the woman. So we had the woman first, clothed with the sun, and she's pregnant and travailing in birth, ready to give birth, and now she gives birth, and so we have the timeline of where we are in history describing God's people. And the Messiah comes. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay, do we have a Bible story about uh, the Messiah being born and the dragon going as soon as he's born? Trying to devour the child? Certainly, we go to the book of Matthew, verse, chapter 2, verse 16. Herod slew all the children that were in Bethlehem from two years old and under. Why did Herod do that? The dragon, using Herod, using the Roman power, 
to try and devour the child, the Messiah, as soon as he's born. So he sends army over there. They kill all the children under two years old. But the Lord spared the child, sent him off to Egypt with his parents. Back to Revelation 12, verse 5. And, the and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So you see, it's moving pretty quickly through these verses, right? So he's born, and now he's tried to be killed, and then he's ascending. So he goes through his whole life really quickly, and now he's in his ascension mode, right? So he's died, he's been killed, he's been resurrected, and he spent uh, time with the disciples, and now he has ascended up to God and to his throne. Right? So again, we have that in the Bible. Again, we have that in the scriptures of Yeshua's uh, resurrection and ascension into heaven. Verse 13, still Revelation 12. The dragon persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So now the dragon can't get to the child anymore. He can't get to uh, the Messiah anymore because he has ascended. He's sitting back on his throne. So who does he attack? He attacks the woman, right? He attacks the woman. If you can't get at the one, so they will attack the woman, right? And so, uh, and now we see this is the same woman. It doesn't change women. It's not a different woman here. It's the woman before the Messiah was born, and it's the same woman after the child is born and attempted to be killed and ascends to heaven. God's people are the same all throughout. The children of the daughter of Zion, right? God's people, those who fear his name. And so that's describing the woman, right? So who is the woman, for example? Was, uh, was for example, Peter and John, uh, disciples Peter and John, were they of the woman? Were they uh, from the tribe of Israel? Were they born from the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Yes, yeah. Were they fearing God? Yes. They're following the Messiah, right? They feared his name, right? So, so they were part of that woman. They were daughter of children of Zion. Now, how about Judas? Judas was one of the disciples. Was he born from the tribes of Israel? Was he born from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the bloodline? Yeah, he certainly was. Did he fear God's name? Not so much. No, not so much. Right. So even though he's from the lineage, he was not one who feared God. So he's not part of the daughters of children of Zion. Now, how about after the Messiah has ascended? Paul, for example. Saul, who becomes Paul, was he of the line of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yeah, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Did he fear the Lord? Eventually, did he surrender to the Lord and fear the Lord? Yes. And walked in his ways? Yes. He's part of Israel, right? How about... Uh, um, um, I forget his name, from Caesarea, the, uh, the Italian uh, soldier. Um, I forget his name. Or many others, centurion who gives his heart to the Lord. Right? Was he, uh, did they, were they born from the children of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. Did they fear God's name? Yeah, were they adopted into the family of God? Yes, most certainly, right? So it's still the same woman, all those who fear God's name, right? All those who follow the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind. All who accept Yeshua become the children of Abraham, right? So it's the same woman all throughout. Same consistency all throughout. God's people. And so now the dragon is persecuting the woman. So historically, did the dragon, did the devil use people to persecute God's people after Yeshua was ascended? Yeah, certainly did, right? Yeah, we have Romans. Uh, again, it was, uh, so the Romans, uh, dragon using Rome to uh, persecute with the, with the Colosseums and putting believers in uh, with gladiators and killing them and with wild beasts and ripping them to part um, for sport. And we still have some of the remains of these Colosseums today in, in Rome and, and in uh, Caesarea, in Israel, and other places. Yes. And then even continuing after that, when Rome, when pagan Rome becomes Christianized Rome, it continues the persecution of the followers of God, those who wanted to follow the God, God of the Bible, 
they were persecuted with the rack and with the dungeon and with pulling apart and all other kinds of things and inquisitions and, and, uh, uh, and later on pogroms and, and the Holocaust. So the dra dragon persecuting God's people. And that's what's prophesied, that the dragon would do, that the devil would do. Revelation 12, verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God. So as the dragon is persecuting, God continues to keep a remnant, continues to spare his people. Many die, many martyrs down through the ages, but still a remnant remains and continues on and keeps the line on, whether hiding in the mountains or living in ghettos and secluded that they should feed her there, the mountains, the hills, the wilderness, should feed her there 1,260 days. Right? This is time period here, so we have this 1,260 days. We've looked at that before, so again, this is review. We've looked at it several times. It's mentioned seven times uh, in the books of Daniel and Revelation. I think this is uh, the fifth or sixth time mentioned here. And so we've learned in Bible prophecy using the Bible, that a day in Bible prophecy equals how long? A year, exactly. The Bible, just like when, when the spies went over, the, the, ten, the 12 spies went and searched out the land. They searched out the land for 40 years with Moses, Moses' time. They went over and searched out the land for 40 days. They came back. Ten of them gave a bad report. People listened to that. They refused to go and conquer the land of Canaan. And so God said, for every day that the spies were there, you shall wander a year, 40 years for 40 days. Right? And then we saw that in the book of Ezekiel as well. So time prophecy, a day equals a year. So 1,260 days would be, in prophetic understanding, 1,260 years that God's people would be under this persecution and hiding in these places to be spared and to keep God's word. And so we have people such as... Uh, the Waldensians hidden up in the mountains, keeping God's word. Jewish people being spared and hid and persecuted and having to change from country to country under the persecution and surviving during this time period known as the Dark Ages. And so the specific time period, 538 AD, when the papacy comes to its full power with, uh, with the emperor giving it its position and giving its uh, uh, army and protection, and military, and there's no more nations. There were three nations that were opposing it. Those three nations were knocked out. So 538 becomes a significant year. We go exactly 1,260 years later. We come to 1798. And in 1798, Napoleon sends his general Berthier in to arrest the Pope and take the Vatican captive, taking away its power for a time. And so we have this 1,260-year period of time. So we're tracking the woman, and so we've gone from before the Messiah is born to her getting ready to bring the Messiah into this world, the Messiah's life and his death and burial and resurrection and ascension, and then through the persecutions under pagan Rome, and then into papal Rome, and continuing on the timeline of this woman, God's people. Verse 15, And the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. And this, again, this chapter is demonstrating God's concern for his people. God's eyes are upon his people. God promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And so he has left a record of the people down through the ages who were persecuted, who were tried, who were faithful, who kept God's word, who remained true to him. God has recorded it in his word in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Thus the Bible, again, one whole book covering God's interaction with his people throughout the entire ages of this earth. No 2,000-year gap in the middle there where God just takes a break, takes, goes on vacation, takes a nap, and then sometime in the future, who knows when, uh, he starts being concerned again for his people. No, the Bible tracks the history of God's people, God's interaction with his people. So verse 15, the serpent, the devil, the dragon. Right? We know the serpent, we've seen that. The, the, the serpent representing the devil from the Bible spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. We've already seen who the woman is. So what is this water and what is this flood? Again, where do we go to find out the definitions of water and flood for Bible prophecy? 
The Bible, exactly. This is so key. I mean, you know, I'm emphasizing that and reviewing that because that's so important because too many people think YouTube is the answer. They think the Internet's the answer. And that's not the answer. They think the newspaper is the answer. Or books that were written that were totally wrong and then people still buying these authors' books. We need to go to the Bible and let the Bible interpret itself. So, so important. And being consistent. We've just used that year-to-day principle. Again, other groups will use it, but not consistently. We're using it consistently with every time prophecy. You have to understand Daniel and Revelation consistently. It's a consistent book, consistent books with a consistent pattern. God is a God of order. He goes through systematically his historical account, prophetic when it was written. So the water, what does this water represent? We go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. The waters which you saw are, that's the definition, the water is, the waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it describes these waters represent the multitudes of people. People, multitudes, nations, and tongues. When the Bible says tongues, it's not talking about a literal tongue. It's talking about a language, right? Language is like when the, when the gift of tongues was poured out on the disciples in Acts chapter 2, everyone heard in their own language. Right? So again, we have to understand these terminology using the rest of the Bible, other parts of the Bible. So peoples, multitudes, nations, tongues, where on earth in history were God's people, where the Bible was being taught, where the Bible was being accepted, was the dragon persecuting God's people in an area of the earth where there were multitudes of people, where there were many nations, where there was many different languages. And you think of part on the earth, place on the earth. What's that? Europe, yeah, exactly. What we call it today, Europe, yeah. There's lots of languages there. There's lots of nations there. There's lots of people there, very concentrated. And God's people, that's where the Bible then tracked, right? Where the gospel went. The gospel went that way. That's where God's people, for the most part, began to accept God's word. Again, there were believers in other parts of the world, but in a concentrated way. The Bible first printed in Europe and then distributed in mass and first translated into the common language of the people in these areas. And this is where the persecution, right? So the waters. And so then the, what's the flood? Can we go to the Bible? Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19. When the enemy comes in like a flood, right? So the enemy persecuting like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So the floods represent the enemy, the devil, the dragon, the serpent persecuting the woman, and then God's going to lift up a standard to protect the woman. So back to Revelation 12. But the earth helped the woman. So the serpent, the dragon, the devil is persecuting in Europe, and we see that again, the Holocaust and the, and the, uh, and the Inquisitions against God's people, the Crusades, persecuting God's people, punishments taking place, and God using the earth to protect the woman. So the flood, flood of persecution, waters representing people, multitudes, nations, languages. So if waters represents peoples, multitudes, nations, languages, then in contrast to that, if that's what waters represent, then in contrast to that, what would earth represent? What would be the opposite of peoples and multitudes and nations and languages? Wilderness, yeah, wilderness, a, a, a desolate area, an area where there's not many people, an area where there's not many nations, an area where there's not many languages. Correct. So the earth swallowed, right? So the earth helped the woman by swallowing up this flood of persecution, by swallowing up this flood of water. So our time period, right? We mentioned the 1,260 years. So what place on the earth around 1798? the end of the 1,260 years, was an unpopulated place in the world that dried up the flood of religious persecution. 
Can you think of a place where God's people, where the Bible ends up going around the late 1700s, where there was no more persecution, or for the most part, was hindered persecution of God's people, where there weren't many people, where there weren't many languages, where there weren't many nations. Can you think of a place on the earth? The USA, the United, America the Beautiful, that's right. Now this is amazing because this was prophetic. God saw America back in John's day and prophesied not only that the woman would be persecuted after Yeshua's ascension, and that was predicted and came to pass, but that there would come a nation towards the end of the 1,260 years where there would be a nation where there wouldn't be many people, where people of Bible faith can go and flee to and be protected and not be persecuted for their faith. And God saw America. And I think that's wonderful and beautiful. It absolutely amazes me that more people don't see that so clearly in the text here. Again, if you're following it through, if you think everything's in the future, you won't see it at all. And then you won't think America is in Bible prophecy. But how could a nation that has for more than 200 years protected God's people, that is currently shedding more missionaries around the world than any other nation, it's not the most populated nation, but it's sending more missionaries around the world where the Bible is being translated and sent and finances are going forth to help the gospel go to the world, where God's people have been protected, where it's become this sanctuary for God's people. How could that not be in the Bible if the Bible is tracking the history of God's interaction with his people on the earth? Yes, most definitely, the United States of America is in Bible prophecy. And here it is in Revelation chapter 12. Again, in harmony with the rest. We've been looking at this chapter as it's overlapped all the rest of the chapters, been consistent with everything we've been studying, covering the same time periods, and now it's expanded a little bit more and added a new character, a new player onto the scene. Not a whole different chapter, not a whole different interpretation, not a whole other book, place, understanding consistent with all the rest, just the next stage in that understanding. So America and the Constitution was written in 1789, so just nine years before the end of the 1,260 years. So again, right around that time where the Constitution is being written, and coming to pass. And what is it about the Constitution that is so important? What is it about the America that made it this power, this nation, this place, this earth, where it swallowed up the flood? What is it in the Constitution that helps to do that and fulfill that role? It's the Establishment Clause. Congress, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, that's pretty simple. Man, it makes common sense. So we think about that, we don't even think, we don't even have to think about that. It's just kind of common knowledge to us who grew up under this kind of setting. Yeah, who wouldn't want to have that? Who, of course that makes sense. That's what we should offer everyone. That's what our, should be the rules of our land. Should be based on that. Very simple line. And yet it took thousands of years for somebody to think of it. And even since that time, almost no other nation has duplicated it and followed it or practiced it. But this is what makes the United States unique in giving religious liberty. All through Europe, it didn't have that. Most of the nations today don't have that. Most of the people in the world today do not live under a system that allows them to have religious freedom in this way. We don't know how fortunate we are. We don't appreciate it. We've been born under it and lived under it. We don't realize how great it is to have this privilege. And too often we take it for granted. So what exactly does this mean? Congress shall make no law, no law, 
respecting the establishment of religion. Thus the government shall not make any laws to encourage, to respect, to, to puff up one religion over another, to give favoritism, respect to one religion over another. Shall not establish it, shall not help it, shall not finance it. Once again, it seems makes sense. But yet in Europe, each country sponsored, respected, established a religion. So in English, they established the Church of England. In Italy, they had the Catholic Church. In Germany, they had the Lutheran Church. And even still today, in Germany, taxes go to pay for the ministers in the churches. Even if you don't go to the church. Even if you're a non-believer, even if you're an atheist, even if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, your taxes go to pay for the churches, for the ministers. They're establishing religion in that way. And again, most of the other countries, Muslim countries, so we've got countries that favor and establish and respect Islam over others. And in certain kinds of Islam, Sunni Islam or, or Shiite uh, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. You have countries respecting a religion, their government encouraging, favoring, sponsoring religions over other religions. But our Constitution says no. This is what swallowed up that flood of persecution. That's what caused the persecution in Europe. John Bunyan got put up in prison because he was preaching the Bible. But he wasn't registered with the Church of England. And so he got arrested. Wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, part one and part two. Fabulous book. They were persecution. The pilgrims, they left Europe, not because they weren't a religion in Europe. It wasn't that religion was outlawed. It wasn't an atheistic uh, area. They had lots of religion. But if you weren't a part of that established religion that that government was establishing, that that nation established, you were persecuted. And so they left, and many lost family members in their lives just so they can worship God freely. This clause swallows up that flood of persecution. Shall not respect the establishment of religion, or on the other side, prohibit the free exercise thereof. So it's not going to encourage it, establish it, Respect it, nor prohibit it, nor hinder it, nor suppress religion, the free exercise of religion. And so we can have our meeting on Wednesday night or Saturday night or Friday night or any day of the week in the middle of the night, in the middle of the morning, at noontime, whenever we want, wherever we want, they will not prohibit the free exercise thereof. You can read your Bibles in your home. We can come together and study it together. They will not prohibit the free exercise. Again, so simple. And yet in the majority of countries in this earth today, religion is prohibited. Maybe not all religion, but some religion is prohibited because it does not go along with the majority religion that is established in that country. In Saudi Arabia, there are zero churches in Saudi Arabia. There are a lot of Christians there, but they're not allowed to build a church. It's prohibited. They prohibit the free exercise thereof. In many other places, they're persecuted and killed for believing in the Bible. So simple. Balance on both sides. Not establish, no prohibit. Wonderful document. Timeless document. But unheard of in its day, and unfortunately still, for the most part, unpracticed in most of the world. But America, the United States of America, has swallowed up the flood of persecution with this simple line in the Constitution. This establishment clause of it. And again, we should appreciate it and we should make use of it. We should practice the religion while we, have, while we have light and day. 
daylight, because night is coming when no one will be able to work. We will not have these privileges forever. Now we have the opportunity to share God's word and to practice it and put in, read it and be blessed by it and tell others. And God has opened ways that we can share it with people who don't know our faith, people coming into this country and using the internet and other means and letters and mail and sending the gospel and sending missionaries out to other places as well. We have that freedoms here in this country. Be thankful for it. Practice it, make use of it. It goes along with what the Bible taught, what Yeshua taught in Revelation or Mark chapter 12, verse 17. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Right? Two separate entities, Caesar and God. We can serve both. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. We don't have to put them both together, have religion and state together. That's how it is in most of the world, where they're establishing religion. No, serve Caesar, and we can serve Caesar. We can serve the United States, and we can serve God. We can pledge our allegiance to the United States of America. We can be thankful for our flag and respect our flag. At the same time, be loyal to God. In the same way, we can be loyal to God and loyal to our spouse. We can make a commitment to our spouse. We can sign a marriage agreement. We can pledge ourselves to our spouse without disrespecting God. God is first. God is foremost. God is above country. God is above marriage. God is above all things. But at the same time, we can be loyal to God and still at the same time be loyal to the country we live in and loyal to the spouse we have committed ourselves to. And so this establishment clause, what does it basically say about religion and government? Or what does it really say about government in relation to religion? How should government respond and react to religion according to the establishment clause? They shouldn't, exactly. Hands off, stay out of our business. They have no, and this was them saying it voluntarily themselves. The writers of the Constitution, we will stay out of the business of religion. We will not have anything to do with it. We will not establish it, nor will we prohibit it. We'll let it have its own free market. We'll let it do whatever it wants without our intervention. Without us messing it up. The more government gets into, the more it messes things up. Stay out of its business. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Because we can't trust, the history has shown over and over again, still today, when government gets involved in religion, it messes it up. And yet today we have people wanting to break either one side or the other side of this establishment clause. They're either their religion is weak and thus they're wanting help, and so they're calling upon the government to come in and help us out, prohibit these other religions. Ours is not good enough, it won't stand on its own. Help us out. They're wanting to prohibit the free exercise of other people's religion. Wanting the government to establish them. They're not praying with their children at home, so they want the teachers to pray with the students. In public school, the teachers, they are paid by who? Who, Who's their employer? Who? Who's the employer of the teacher? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. The The state. Right, the state. The state is the employer of the teacher. They are government employees. And that's why when they're, as a government employee, when they're on the clock, they should not be respecting the establishment of religion. Why they should not be the ones to teach religion to the children. But how about the student in school? Who's their employer? Who's their employee? Who's who's, who's, Who's in charge of them? Family, they're free agents. So they can practice their religion unprohibited by the government, by the state, by the principal, by the teacher. They can pray before a test. They can pray before their meal. They can read their Bibles during recess. They're free agents. They're not government employees. Now, the teacher can have faith, pray at home, go to services during the week, after school hours, 
when they put on the government hat, they are not to establish nor prohibit, not tell the kid he can't read, can't pray, nor tell him what to read or tell him how to pray. Now, if we want our teachers to pray with our children, if we want our teachers to teach our children about religion, then what should we do? Set up a non-government school, a private school, a parochial school. And we have the wonderful privilege here in this government, in this country to do that. Why? Because government will not prohibit the free exercise thereof. So they're not involved then, if that's what we want. But if we want the government to teach our children at public school, then we don't want the government influencing them one way or the other regarding religion. And that's the balance of both. The student can pray. Some people say the student can't pray. Some teachers and principals try and stop them. But every time it goes to court or they get a notice from a lawyer, they back off because they read the Establishment Clause and they get educated. At least in this country, thankfully, at this time. Because God has used this country, to the earth, as represented in that prophecy, to swallow up the flood of persecution of the waters. Roger Williams, who was around long before the Constitution was written here in the United States, he came up with this concept because even as the pilgrims and others were starting to come over here, they began to do as they did in Europe. They began to establish their religion in their state. And so you had the Puritans in one place, you had the Quakers in another place, you had various different groups setting up their, their little fiefdom, their little kingdom, their little nation, and they began establishing their religion in their area and prohibiting others from that, from, their, from worshiping their, having their religion. Even if they were all Bible religions, Bible believers. And so Roger Williams comes along and says, no, no, this is not good. Everybody has a right to worship God. As he said, every man should have liberty to worship God according to the light of his own conscience. And to go on, and if he doesn't want to worship God, he shouldn't have to either. And thus he protected the Indians. So he established, and he, for these ideas, he wasn't well liked. They tried to kill him. They ran him out of, I think it was Pennsylvania, they ran him out of there. Maybe it was Connecticut, I don't know. They ran him out in the middle of the winter to flee into the woods. Nearly starved to death and froze to death. But miraculously was spared. And he made it to Rhode Island. He becomes the governor of Rhode Island. And he establishes this principle that ends up getting written into the Constitution of not establishing or respecting religion nor prohibiting the free exercise. That's why the first synagogue in the United States is in Rhode Island. That's a picture of it there. Toto, that's right, Toro, right? It's still there today. Because they had freedom. So the Jews had freedom to worship God according to their conscience. Indians had freedom to worship or not worship according to the Bible. Other groups were free and welcome to come and worship God according to the light of their own conscience. And then again, from Rhode Island, it spread as it was still a colony then. That concept spread until it was written into the Constitution. In 1950, right after the Holocaust, there were five million Jewish people in the United States. If they were all in Europe, if the U.S., if God did not use the U.S. to swallow up the flood and give religious freedom here in this country, if the United States had been just as persecuting as, as parts of Europe, and the Jews did not see the freedom and did not come here and immigrate here, and they stayed there in Europe, what would have happened with those? We wouldn't have those five million. Many of those five million would have been killed during the Holocaust. But God used the United States to help preserve the Jewish people through the persecutions that took place in Europe. The United States has been a, a beacon of light, a haven, a sanctuary, a refuge, as described in that simple verse and the earth swallowed up the flood. And then Revelation 12 ends, again, because the prophecy takes us, it's a long prophecy, only 17 verses, but it covers and spans a long time. The devil being cast out of heaven all the way to the dragon was enraged with the woman. And even beyond this, it talks about the devil's 
demise and destruction. We looked at last week. But here in this verse, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. Pretty plain, pretty simple. The dragon, the devil, Satan, Hasatan, was enraged, angry, wroth with the woman, God's people, and went to make war, bloodshed, persecution, martyrs, death, with the rest of her offspring. Some translations translate that as the remnant, the last group, the rest of her offspring. And it's interesting in Revelation, again, two groups. We'll see this other woman, this counterfeit woman. She has daughters. And here the true woman has this rest of the offspring, the last people remaining among God's people. The rest down to the very end. The devil going around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, because he knows his time is short. So it's describing here, going around making war against God's people and the rest, the remnant, the last of the children of the daughter of Zion, God's people who fear his name. And then it describes what this remnant will look like, what these people will look like, what the woman looks like at the very end, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. Two simple requirements. Two simple descriptions. Now, in other parts of the Bible, it broadens its description of God's last day people. It talks about other things that are characteristic of it, being worldwide and taking the gospel to the world and doing, sharing the gospel in various different ways and with the gifts of doing various different things and sharing and helping and healing and ministering and teaching. Again, very we'll get into that maybe another week. But here in this verse, just two simple characteristics. And of these two simple, just having these two simple characteristics, that's simple. To even just meet the simple two. Again, there's more, but even just to meet these simple two, the vast majority of people, Bible believers, don't meet these two. You think someone would read this, the remnant of God's people. The last people, the offspring of the woman, has these two characteristics. Well, let's follow that. Let's duplicate that. Let's just do those two things. That seems simple enough. And yet the majority do not. They either have one or the other or neither, but very, very few, and maybe that's why it's called a remnant. Very, very few have both. Keeping the commandments of God. Some have that, some keep the commandments of God, but don't have Yeshua the Messiah. Others have Yeshua the Messiah, but they don't believe in the Ten Commandments. At least not all of them. They believe it's old or done away with or replaced or altered. To follow all the Ten Commandments, to keep the commandments of God, and at the same time have faith in Yeshua the Messiah. So simple, yet so unique. So rare. So easy to follow. When we have Yeshua, to follow his commandments become our joy. He writes his laws in our hearts and our minds. And he compels, them to, compels us to keep them. Truth and mercy kissing each other. Coming together. The whole Bible coming together. The law and the gospel coming together. And yet, again, so rare. This is describing God's people down to the end of time. Chapter on the woman. Before she was, gave birth to the child, giving birth to the child, child being persecuted, tempted to be killed, child ascending up into heaven, the woman continuing to be persecuted, and the woman described at the end time. The two main characteristics. Keeping the commandments of God and having faith, the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. And so, as we prepare to pray, 
if you want to be part of that people. Have those two characteristics in your life. If you have never accepted Yeshua as the Messiah, I invite you to do so in a moment when we pray. Or if you have accepted Yeshua as the Messiah, but you're not keeping all the Ten Commandments. If you've broken one, you've broken them all. If you want to confess that to God and ask Him to fill you with His Spirit, to bring your life into harmony with all of His Ten Commandments, then a moment when we pray, we can do that. And also in a moment when we pray, if you want to be thankful and just praise God for the United States of America, that God has used it to protect his bride and to use them and give them the opportunity to share his word with the rest of the world. Then in a moment when we pray, you can thank God and just praise God. Fourth, if you have been neglecting the privileges that come by not having a government that establishes religion nor hinders it, and you have not been making use of that freedom to worship God fully and completely and to share him with other people here in this country and in other parts of the world. You want to ask God to give you his spirit, to give you his power, to use this opportunity rightly, to worship God in your home on a daily basis, to come together for spiritual gatherings, to worship and fellowship with others, like-minded believers, and to take this opportunity to not be persecuted for sharing your faith with others, however that means, whether wearing t-shirts or bumper stickers or passing out cards or verbally or sending out emails or posting things on social media, or raising funds for missions overseas or going overseas temporarily or permanently, however God's leading you, and directing in your mind and heart. Even as a foreign missionary with a U.S. citizenship, gives you a lot of privileges in these other countries still. We're very blessed here. Very thankful. And so if you haven't been making use of that, in a moment when we pray, if you want to confess that to God, ask him to fill you with his spirit, fill you with his righteousness, and give you the power to use this gift to its fullness. In a moment when we pray, you can do so. And then we'll take a look at the chart again and see how Revelation 12 matches up with the rest of the chart. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you brought America in. You've shown us where it fits in Bible prophecy, where it fits in earth's history. Thank you for using this amazing country in this way. Thank you that we are live here. Thank you for the privilege of living here. Thank you for the privilege of being a citizen here. Forgive us for not appreciating this privilege more. We want to accept you as our Messiah. We want to accept your spirit to come into our hearts and give us the ability to fully live out the Ten Commandments and to worship you freely and to share that with others, to work while it is day before the night comes. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.